this is a, a subject that I tend not to talk about and am kind of happy not to talk about, but I also kind of would be happy to talk about. I've never actually had someone want to go out with me before, but in grade four there was a rumor around that this guy had a crush on me, but I think he just wanted to be friends personally. What I can understand is that someone liking you and going out with you means that they see a special side of you that no one else knows about. No boy has ever asked me out, and I've never like asked any of the boys out in my school because, like, to be honest, to all the boys that I've come to contact with, like in class and whatnot, they're annoying. My mom keeps saying, "Oh, you're too young to be in a relationship," but I personally get crushes on people every now and then. And but would it matter if they have autism or not? Like, do you have a pre? Would you prefer if it's someone that also has autism or? It doesn't matter. I don't care as long as they're cute, they're nice, and they're a feminist. Those are some teens from our Autism Roundtable talking about dating. Hi, I'm Katie Benison, your host, and I'm also the mom of a teenage daughter with autism. Welcome to Life on the Spectrum, the Autism Family Podcast. And today, we're talking about the teenage years, and they can be rough for anybody. Suddenly, there's dating, texting, driving, social media. Sometimes there's alcohol, drugs, or vaping. The academic demands are different, too, and kids start planning for their futures. But what happens when you throw autism into the mix? Well, as you heard from our teens, it can be confusing. So today, we're talking about surviving adolescence and how to best prepare young people with autism for the future. A little later, we'll hear from some parents. But first, I sat down with Claire Winson-Jones. She's a psychologist at the ABLE Development Clinic in Vancouver, Canada. She works with teens on the spectrum. She helps guide them through the challenges of being a teenager and planning for life after high school. She started by talking about one of the most important things teens with autism need to learn. One of the biggest difficulties for clients with high-functioning autism is, because of the social communication deficits, learning how to self-advocate. And a lot of times we have these great parents that are able to take care of their kids and advocate for their kids, but young people, as they transition into high school, and even more importantly, as they transition into university, they need to learn how to self-advocate to be able to recognize their strengths and also recognize and ask for assistance where they need it. So the, the teen years are obviously really rough. They're, you know, they're all about teenage crushes and body changing and gender questioning and hormones and so forth. And they're really hard conversations to have with any teen. Are there any additional challenges faced in these areas by teens with autism? Well, I think that um, there's an issue about managing attraction. Because individuals with high-functioning autism can have this sticky thinking, they could be attracted to an individual and their intensity is turned up a little too high. So they can be too overt, too in your face. So it's managing, learning how to manage sexual feelings, learning how to manage those really difficult attractions, learning how to manage rejection can be difficult, a little more difficult for a person with social communication difficulties, although I think it's difficult for all youth. 
I think for a lot of youth working with a therapist about sharing common interests, sharing attractions, managing bullying, managing get-togethers is really helpful. Um, I think things like peers groups where a individual works with a therapist, but in a co-led group with eight or nine other kids with high-functioning autism is really helpful so that they're able to practice those skills with support so that they're understanding the reciprocity of these things. And also they understand the boundaries because sometimes... All of us can become obsessed. And so that's sort of for the child to understand or the young person to understand the limits often requires specific concrete therapy that a peers group or working with a speech language pathologist or working with a psychologist can be very helpful. So can you give some examples if you were trying to teach a teen with ASD how to determine sexual consent? Because it's really hard to read social cues uh, whether or not you're on the spectrum. Well, I think that, you know, one of the things that's really paramount is to talk to individuals, whether they're male or female, about the idea of consent. I think that that is part of sexual education for all kids, but I think it's really important, particularly with high-functioning girls, is that if you are desperate for connection and you're feeling attracted to a person, that doesn't necessarily mean that you want to be sexual. And I think that we have to be really explicit about things like um, consent and about um, the consequences of not being clear. And so I think all young people, but particularly people with high-functioning autism, they need to make a decision in advance whether they're prepared to be sexual or not and why they would be doing that. Body language. Like if you have a crush on somebody and you're really interested in them and they're giving you the brush off, maybe if you're on the spectrum, you might not notice that. So how do you teach to determine whether sexual consent is there or if someone's interested you in you for friendship or even a relationship? Well, I think part of it is, is teaching the individual to be very specific. Those cues are incredibly subtle to see the difference. And so part of it is I think we need to teach them to be explicit, which means to for a young person to actually say, I'm going to make up a name, Nathan, I'm attracted to you, I'm interested in you, to be that explicit. Am I reading the signs correctly? And if Nathan says, look, I think you're fabulous, making up a name, Sally, but I'm not interested in you in that way, then you have to accept that boundary. Do not think that if you keep sending texts or keep approaching the person that they're going to change their mind. So you have to respect their limit, respect their boundary. And this is very confusing for all young people. But if you add the black and white thinking of a person with high functioning autism, it gets very overwhelming. Then we have to actually coach our young people about it's hard when the person says, I like you, but I'm not interested in you in that way. But then we need to say, you have to accept the boundary. No repeat texting, no hanging around, no sending notes. That that ends up being um, inappropriate. 
And that's when a person's at risk for being bullied, and that impacts their self-esteem. And that was my, my next question. How can parents protect their kids on the spectrum against cyberbullying? What can they teach them? It's having the kind of relationship with your person, your young person, where you talk to them about limiting social media and recognizing boundaries and limits. And I think that this is really difficult, um, that there is some mean-spiritedness that happens, that there's sometimes naivete. Uh, people can re think they're receiving a text from somebody who's a friend, who's setting them up. And so I think partly it's to have conversations, but even to have kids involved in peers groups where they're talking about bullying, they're talking about getting a bad reputation, they're talking about managing things. But I really feel like parents can be the coach. But in if we're going to be coaches, we have to be open and accepting. We have to understand that having high-functioning autism is just part of a person. The person still has lots of interests. They still have sexual feelings. They're still, in many ways, a typical person. So it's being willing to have those difficult conversations about wanting to belong, wanting to fit in how to manage social media, how to not be a bully, because it's easy to be a bully or it's easy for you to be too intense with your texting as well. So when someone on the spectrum can't regularly read those cues, because it's hard when you're not face-to-face -face with a person and it's just a computer, how do you teach when, you know, that, that person actually is making fun of you? I think partly it's to look at, you know, in concrete, specific ways. This is a text that is a reasonable, appropriate text. Usually, there's a lot of young people can tell the difference between a reasonable, appropriate text that's 100% reasonable and a text that's 100% not okay. It's the subtleties. So again, you know, it's sort of like having the person stop and go, do you think this seems reasonable? Well, I'm not sure. Okay, so if you think that you're being set up, or if you think that this is somewhat unreasonable, how should you manage it? The way to manage it is to respond back and go, are you making fun of me? Or this feels a bit uncomfortable. Again, I think this is about the self-advocacy. It's about this ability to say, you know, sometimes I don't make need cues. Are you being kind or are you being unkind? So you might actually do that right in the therapy session. Absolutely. That's great. Right. And also to sort of say to the client, you know what, if I'm not here to help you, who else can help you? So maybe they do have a good friend that can help them. Or maybe they do have a good school teacher or they have a parent. It's like, let's talk about this. And then let's talk about how this makes us feel. That was Dr. Claire Winston-Jones. She's a psychologist at the Able Development Clinic in Vancouver, Canada. In a moment, we'll talk with her again about helping teens get ready for the next stage of their lives. She's also going to be sharing her main piece of advice for parents when it comes to helping their teens on the spectrum. But first, I want to talk about some common parental concerns for teens with ASD. Parents worry. It's what we do, right? 
And an especially common worry has to do with how our teens living with autism conduct themselves on social media. So I asked our parent roundtable to weigh in on this. I think it's difficult for neurotypical, quote-unquote, normal teenagers to understand that a lot of that stuff that we're seeing, for example, on Instagram is marketing or it's, for lack of a better term, fake, right? Um, and so it's, I think, even harder for non-neurotypical kids on the spectrum to understand that that stuff is not real. He has an Instagram account and he makes some rap songs and posts them. So it had some advantages for him, like he find friends. She doesn't have much presence online. She hasn't asked for it, she hasn't pushed for it. It's not something she's been interested in. But we talk about the dangers also a lot, like what can happen, and one person can tell you that he's like 14, but he can be like a 60-year-old person from another part of the world. And it was hard for him to get it because it was like, what? Why? And then we went through that a lot. She just WhatsApps me and her mom and stuff, but she really doesn't have a lot of friends at, her, at the high school, and there's not a big extended community of people she's texting or anything. I actually have found that there has been some advantages to it in that he has made connections and friendships with other kids online. And in some ways, it's kind of been good for him because when you connect with someone via text, for example, so if you're texting or emailing back and forth, you don't have the nonverbal communication levels for them to interpret, which they have a challenge interpreting. They have just that one level of communication, which are the words, and I think that's actually been really good for him in some ways. So he's 14, he shows me, he's like, look, Someone wrote that. Who's that? Who? And I can navigate through it and we can talk about it, but I'm not sure what happens in like a year or two. Quite obsessively or part of his maladaptive behavior, as he's not been doing well and been in school, is he spends a lot of time in these types of mediums. He's very bright on finding ways to create accounts or move through different things. So I, I got to this point of releasing control and taking the bubble wrappers off about nine months ago and really just sort of trusting him to make the right decision and having some of those conversations with him about, okay. Dylan, I know and you know that there's a lot of people out there that do and say and do different things. And I know sometimes you're gonna make some mistakes and that's okay, but I trust you to make more of the right decisions. And if you have a problem, you can come to me. Those were some voices from our Autism Parent Roundtable talking about the challenges their teens face with social media. Of course, we all know testing boundaries is part of teenage life. And sometimes kids experiment with alcohol or drugs, which can be a huge worry for parents, especially those of us with kids on the spectrum. We worry that our kids may not fully understand the pitfalls. Here's Dr. Winston Jones with her thoughts on this topic. I think that um, this is part of that sticky thinking that comes uh, with autism spectrum disorder. So it's like, if I like it, I like it intensely. Lots of kids like Minecraft and lots of kids like DC Marvel and lots of kids like Fortnite. But if you have high functioning autism and you like it, you can like it very intensely, especially if you're feeling like you can't manage the social world. So, you know, being with your peers is frightening. So you withdraw, 
you're alone and you are on social media intensely or you're doing something intensely. A lot of young people with autism don't actually like drugs and alcohol because they tend to be very rule bound. But certainly you can imagine that a young person who's got social communication difficulties and is anxious in social situations, drinks alcohol, relaxes, that that recognition is more uh, likely to happen with this sticky, intense, repetitive behaviors. So again, I think these are things that we have to talk to young people about. This is part of what a social skills group does or a peers group is to talk about this balance. So to really sort of tell um, young people about the need to... Yes, enjoy Fortnite. Yes, enjoy social media. To have some social outlets. If you're not into sports, fair enough, but you have to be doing chess or you have to be doing dragon boating so that we have to make sure that we don't have young people hidden away in rooms doing Fortnite all night long or Minecraft or drinking excessively or using drugs excessively. Um, again, I don't see that a lot with young people with high-functioning autism because of the rule boundness, but definitely there's a propensity to do anything too intensely. That was Dr. Claire Winston-Jones. So let's go back to our Autism Parent Roundtable for their thoughts about alcohol, drugs, and their kids. Does he know what weed smells like? Yes, he does. But I think one of his superpowers is that he's actually really kind of happy with himself and who he is. And he can kind of see these things and go, that's that's dumb. He has lots of social cravings, so he wants to have friends. But he also has some morals and also he's afraid of consequences. Like just even smoking or things, how it affects your body. And he is like, I don't like, he's still in that mode that he's like, no, I don't want that to happen to me. So that logic behind like, why should I do that to myself? Uh, Dylan is hugely engaged and it has a high motivation for social engagement, which might be a little different than other kids on the spectrum. And he craves that. So he will do things to fit in. But he also has this governator on him around what's right and what's wrong. But still, he's still 14 and he just went to high school. So I don't know, like in a year or two, because of fitting in, he might try it. And I'm afraid of that because he gets obsessed and stuck on things. But there has been some experimentation. Uh, There has been some things with other friends. Uh, And I'd rather be part of the conversation than be that rigid uh, authoritarian father. They had this big um, auditorium. He got there late and whatever, he wasn't sitting with his friends and this is his first year in high school, but all these grade like 11s or 12s or whatever came and sat next to him. And I was like, oh, you know, was that okay? And he's like, yeah, they offered me at their vape. I was like, wow, what did you say? And he's like, well, I told them that it will give them lung cancer. And I told them like all of the bad, I was like, oh, geez, that's you? my son. <laughs> you know, I was, I was, I was like, I'm glad you didn't do it. But, but like, that's... try not to lecture the girl, yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. be cool, man. <laughs> that was our Autism Parents Roundtable, sharing some of the conversations they've had about teens, vaping, alcohol, and drugs.
Earlier, we heard from Claire Winston-Jones, a psychologist who works with teens on the spectrum. She talked about how to help teens navigate the tricky social sphere, including romantic relationships. Of course, adolescence is also a time when kids gain independence and they start preparing for the next stages of life, whether it's going to university, getting a job, living on their own for the first time. So I asked Dr. Winston Jones about the difficulties teens face as they make that transition from high school to university. Okay, so what my experience is, is that a lot of the clients I work with, they're academically, they're really bright and very capable. And what's happened is they've gone to high school and they are identified as having high-functioning autism spectrum disorder. So they may have LEC supports or they may be in specialized programs like a GradQuest program. And a lot of times what happens is they've got a peer group, they're doing really well academically, And a lot of parents will actually reduce the amount of therapy supports that they're giving this young person because they're doing so well. The problem is that in that environment, it's somewhat sheltered. And so I will meet parents where they'll say their kid's brilliant and their kid's getting A pluses, which is fantastic. But then I find out from the parents, but they're not getting themselves up in the morning. Mom and dad are scheduling them. Mom and dad are setting the alarm. And then these kids apply to university and they might go to UVic, they might go to residence, and they get totally overwhelmed because they haven't actually been doing their own laundry, making their own meals. They haven't actually even been getting themselves up. And most importantly, they haven't been doing self-advocacy. So teach those life skills when they are teenagers and they're still in the house. It's like a practice run for university? Absolutely. Absolutely has to be the case. So we can't say because they're academically bright that they can be successful at university. They have every ability to be successful at university. But the parents who might have been advocating for their children in high school the university is not going to tolerate it. Even if your child's 17 or 18 and legally is not an adult, the university is not going to have the parents be the advocate. So if your child is not identified as a student with disabilities at the Disability Center, that's a problem. So I absolutely suggest to parents that they be identified as a student with a disability at the university. They may never need any accommodation, but if they're not identified and they have a difficulty with a prof or they have a difficulty with a schedule issue, they slept in, if your child has been given private place and space for exams, if your child has been given more time for exams, the university is not going to give your child that if they're not identified. Yeah, so the things in order to make sure that your teen is set up for success in university, what do they need to have? So my suggestion would be that you make sure you have a psych ed assessment done within the last five years and that the accommodations that are on the educational assessment, they are able to receive them at the university setting. But you have to take that psychoeducational report and go to the students with disabilities office. The universities have different names for them and make 
it known to the university that your child requires accommodation. So typical accommodations that the university will do, depending on the situation, is they may give your child 1.5 times for an exam. So a two-hour exam, for example, they would get three hours. If your child has difficulty taking in information and writing notes, they may give you class notes in advance. They may give you a scribe. Um, most of the universities, all students in their first year are guaranteed residents. But in their second year, they're not guaranteed residents. But for a lot of individuals with high-functioning autism, the support of the student residential services are required. Maybe for first year, for sure, second year, maybe for the whole undergraduate degree. Oh, so they'll get accommodation yeah. for their entire, you know, Bachelor of Arts or whatever they happen to be taking. If that's what the suggestion is on the psychoeducational assessment, that's definitely one of the things that I really recommend. The other thing that I do for a lot of young people is they don't expect that there's going to be a great difficulty for them transitioning to university. If they've been receiving A pluses, they think they're going to just do fantastic. So the other thing that I highly recommend and I put in my reports is that the uh, individual receive a peer support person. So another student, uh, this student might also have high functioning autism and they might be in their second or third or fourth year and they help that person transition successfully into the university environment. They might be dragging them to chess club or one of the clubs so that we don't have a young person show up for their classes and do really well, but they go back to student residence and hide. So what I say to parents is it's kind of like, well, you know how you've been gatekeeping and supporting your family member. Now we're going to ask for a disability counselor to do that. So that person's going to negotiate difficulties with instructors. So if you had one piece of advice for parents to help teens with autism succeed and survive adolescence, what would it be? Okay, so my suggestion is for go one-on-one therapy for social skills groups that for a lot of teens, they're going to learn from their peers. They don't want to hear from a therapist. They don't want to hear from their parents. Don't do this. You should do this. They're just in many ways like other typical teens. So my suggestion would be to do a social skills group, a group of, you know, eight to 10 peers, other peers with high functioning autism, and learn things that are so important about, you know, how to manage bullying, how to manage attraction, how to uh, initiate conversations. But you want them to learn it in a social skills group because then they can practice with their peers. When it's a young person telling another young person, they pay attention. When I say it, when you say it, not so much. But a lot of times it's about being involved in the community, being involved with your peers, learning to self-advocate and being proud to understand that High-functioning autism is just a different way of thinking. We label it so it feels like pathology, but I think it's diversity. I think that if young people can understand that their atypical way of thinking about things is actually really valuable, that when you can think outside of the box, you can actually figure out some of the things that, you know, typical people aren't getting right. Like, how are we going to save 
the world and how are we going to manage climate change? I think it's going to be these people with the atypical ways of thinking that are going to find these really important answers. That was Claire Winston-Jones. She's a psychologist at the Able Development Clinic in Vancouver. You're listening to Life on the Spectrum. I'm your host, Katie Benison. I'm also the mom of a teenage daughter with autism. I hope you're enjoying our podcast. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a review. It will really help us reach more people and let your friends know about it as well. Our website is lifeonthespectrumpodcast.com, where you'll find more content and other episodes. You can also find us on Facebook. We've covered a lot of ground today and learned a lot about navigating the teen years on the spectrum. And for the last word on the subject, we thought, let's listen to what the young people from our Autism Teen Roundtable have to say. What are some of their tips for getting through adolescence in one piece? What are they looking forward to when it comes to getting older and gaining more independence? Yes, I want to get a license one day, and I want to be able to drive on my own. Where would you go? I would drive to uh, Tim Hortons. I also am not good at picking up social cues, so I'm probably going to win the most socially awkward award in my entire school. I don't want to believe that, like, my powers, some of my powers only belong to me. I want to, like, believe that, like, my children will have them. Your children will have autism, you mean? Their brain will work kind of like mine. Maybe, like, the, the most autistic thing that, like, I think is about me is that I'm very shy to talk, like, to just go up and talk to a person. Like, uh, mostly I think it's because, like, I don't know what to say to them most of the time. But at the same time, I want to, you know, I want to make more friends. I get distracted really easily. The only reason I ever get in trouble with my teachers is because I'm, I'm caught on my computer doing things that I really shouldn't be doing. Like? Such as just watching videos on YouTube. One time I accidentally broadcast The Simpsons to the entire class. What? <laughs> You're my kind of guy. I was using Bluetooth headphones, but somehow they disconnected. Be yourself. That's one thing I've learned after all these years. And if you're a child with autism like me listening out there, then don't let labels ruin your life or anything like that. Labels don't matter. They're, they're just a label. You can live through hard things. Well, there you have it. Great insight from the real experts, teenagers from our Autism Roundtable. I hope you found this episode useful when it comes to getting through the teenage years. I've certainly learned a thing or two. I have to stop making my daughter's lunch all the time. In our next episode, we have a very special guest, Autism Trailblazer Temple Grandin. I can't wait to share that conversation with you. So make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and help us spread the word by giving us a review. That would be certainly appreciated. Until next time, I'm Katie Benison. This is Life on the Spectrum, the Autism Family Podcast. Thanks for listening.